Let's get right to the issue at hand. Oxycontin is becoming the largest cause of overdose in the country. Make your doctors feel special. Whatever it takes to win their trust. These are your new magic words. Less than 1%. Less than 1%. Less than 1% of people get addicted to Oxycontin. That's not possible. Purdue Pharma has been marketing the drug. It's not addictive when it clearly is. You're going to need more evidence than you can fit in this entire building. Go find me something big. I've never worked for a pharma company where the FDA did almost everything they wanted. Crime is on the rise across the country. People's lives are at stake, and a pharma company is lying about their medicine. I don't understand what's happening to me. These are good, hard-working people. I can't believe how many of them are good now. Don't worry, it's an excellent drug. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Little Gold Men brought to you by Vanity Fair in partnership with Hulu. I'm Tara Ariano. And I'm LaToya Ferguson. We're going to be discussing all eight episodes of the limited series Dope Sick and how creator Danny Strong and his team created a compelling narrative out of the nonfiction book by Beth Macy and juggled so many story threads in the process. And after our discussion, you'll also hear my interview with Danny Strong about how he made this all happen. Dope Sick, which premiered on Hulu in October 2021, is a decade-spanning examination of America's opioid epidemic through several different groups of people. The Sackler family, who owned Purdue Pharmaceuticals, the makers of OxyContin, Purdue reps who aggressively sold the drug to doctors, a small-town Virginia doctor and the patients to whom he ends up prescribing the drug, and law enforcement, Virginia prosecutors from the U.S. Attorney's Office, and a high-ranking agent in the DEA. And um, as we said up top, it was partially inspired by the best-selling nonfiction book Dope Sick by Beth Macy, who's formerly a journalist at the Roanoke Times and is also a producer on the project um, and appears in one episode very briefly, <laughs> cameo, not as herself. It was developed and mostly written by Danny Strong, a veteran of fact-based material like the HBO movies Recount and Game Change. And as we said, we'll talk to him later on. Latoya, let's start with something Strong said in another interview he was inspired by traffic. Uh, was that an analog that you had in mind as you watched it? Yeah, definitely. Uh, like a contemporary traffic. And it was interesting because I know that Danny Strong also talked about why he decided to make this a limited series instead of doing a movie like Traffic. It was brought up to him as a movie. And I, I recall watching it even still being like, did they even promote this as, you know, how every other show promotes them as, as a, an eight-hour movie or so? Right. Because I'm yeah. watching this and I'm like, this is 100% a TV show. I think you would lose a lot of the emotion and kind of just the hard-hitting nature of it if it was a condensed movie. Yeah. And the crazy thing about the, the traffic analogy is that traffic was... It was a TV show first before it was Steven Soderbergh's movie and was later remade again into a USA miniseries. So even that, I think, was maybe ahead of the curve of like, not everything has to be a movie. Some things need to be bigger. You need the space to tell the story in its fullness. But with that in mind, maybe we'll see a dope sick movie now after this. Right. <laughs> I guess that's <laughs> true. <laughs> so the show jumps around in its timeline a lot. Did this feel to you like an effective way to tell the story? I think it did. I think uh, it could be hard to watch if you weren't paying attention. And I think, luckily, it was very captivating. Like, the show was an hour long, and I both felt the length at every time. But I'm like, strangely, I wanted to stay in this world. And I'll explain more of that later, because that seems strange to say, considering mm -hmm. how um, heartbreaking it can be. But, but I think 
it, there were some times where if you really weren't paying attention, you could, you could lose it. But I think that's also uh, a testament to the, using it in the TV genre. Um, there's a way to cross those paths that I'm not going to I'm not going to throw movies under the bus, obviously. But I think <laughs> that specifically the way that Jenny Strong chose to tell the story from it being TV to the different years and the back and forth, I mm-hmm. think it was very specifically something you had to do this way, to tell the story this way. Yeah, I felt like um, sometimes it was even showing off a little bit in a way I admired where it's like there's <laughs> there's a scene where Bridget, the Rosario Dawson character, the DEA agent is uh, talking to the prosecutors about her divorce. And then the very next scene is her setting up her date with her future husband, who she's in the process of getting divorced from when mm-hmm. we initially meet her. It's like, this is what this is what TV can do that it's harder to do in a movie is just really compress the timeline and 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 sort of Cuisinart all of these storylines in interesting ways. One thing I appreciate about uh, Danny Strong as a writer and creator is that he clearly appreciates and understands television. So again, while I'm watching this, I'm not thinking, wow, it's like an eight hour long movie. I'm thinking this is a well-crafted television show and everyone is acting accordingly. They know they are making television. Yeah. So I feel like this project would not work without its strong sense of place. In a post at NPR, Beth Macy's quoted explaining how important that was to her and that Strong had hired a Kentucky graphic novelist named Robert Gipe. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, G-I-P-E, to consult on that aspect of the series. And we can drill down more on this when we talk about the Caitlin Deaver and Michael Keaton characters. But there's one moment in particular toward the end. Logan Parker, who's played by William Flamin, is in a doctor's waiting room that's decorated with these framed black and white photos from various points in the history of mining in the area. And he talks about them a little with a younger person in the room and the pride that he had of being in that workforce. And it's a a very short scene, but it was so well observed and understated. I found it really moving, particularly since so much of the rest of the story is about shame. Were there any moments that struck you that way? Well, in terms of the show being about shame, one thing I also really appreciated about it I think it's a show that's not misery porn, and that's something that it easily could have been. So, so easily. That's why I also say that I could, I feel like living within this world and continuing to watch it, you know, which is not what you expect with a a show about the opioid crisis. But Mm -hmm. there's the fact that they got Robert Gipe to consult on the Kentucky aspects of the show. It really feels, I acutely feel the rural Virginia aspects of the show. Those feel so honest and true. And just Early on, when Nurse Leah is helping uh, Dr. Phoenix attend to this man who is just, you know, going about his day and he has his rebel flag tattoo just shown proud. And you just mm-hmm. you see that moment. and She's like, this is what she has to deal with every day. But they care about these people. They care about these patients, even though they obviously don't all agree with each other and their worldviews. It's just these are the people you're seeing in this town. And it's not even that, you know, there's ill content or anything coming that way. It's just a Mm -hmm. fact of this life. And it felt so real. Not even like the show was like, look at this. Look at what these people are like. I think that's another thing. While shame is a part of the show, they are the show is intentionally never shaming these uh, small townspeople, especially as they become victims. It it doesn't it never looks down on them. Yes, absolutely. I agree with that 100 percent. There's another another moment like that where we see Rick and Randy out decompressing after a tough conversation with a witness. And it's been established earlier that neither of them drinks. So they're out at like 830 at night having ice cream sundaes <laughs> together, which is so wholesome. But it's like such a specific detail. You just you really get you you know those characters in that moment with something just as as light and silly as that. Yeah. 
in, in general, it's those moments are just as important as uh, the moments showing just how debilitating this opioid addiction is. And again, not only is the show not misery porn, there's it's not about shock value either. It's mm-hmm. it's being honest. It's shining a light, but it doesn't seem exploitative. Yeah, hundred percent. So let's talk about the different storylines, starting with the Sacklers. And I think it's one thing to say money doesn't make rich people happy often, but even before things start collapsing on them, they seem miserable. They all seem to hate themselves and each other. And Richard Sackler, who's played by Michael Stuhlbarg, appears to be the closest to his father. But even when his dad comes by the house one evening, instead of hello, Richard says something about him showing up to ruin his night, which he does. But still, (laughs) it's like, what are you people all getting out of these relationships? Because it seems like you should break up. It's interesting because especially at the beginning, watching the Sackler scenes, I'm like, wow, this is like dumb succession. And I mean that in the best way possible. But at the same time, the characters in succession are also a bunch of dummies, but they're so wealthy behind, like, beyond what we can even imagine. And that's exactly what the Sacklers are, too. Stilberg's performance, uh, it is disconcerting, doesn't even begin to (laughs) describe this. He... Mm -hmm. I don't know how a person can be what he is. And at the same time, I believe this is how a person was. Yeah. It's interesting to hear him keep saying, we're going to cure the world of its pain. And in a way, you're like, does he mean this? Because he seems, it's not that anything seems like it's coming from a good place with him. But at the same time, it's like, in his mind, does he actually believe that that's what he's doing? And is that possible? Is that a reasonable, (laughs) is that a reasonable goal? Because Dr. Phoenix, especially at the end, seems like he does not think so. Yeah, it never seems like he's coming from a place of altruism at all. But trying to understand the way this man's mind works, I feel like Stuhlbarg might be the only person who understands how this man's mind works from, you know, trying to perform as him. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's especially weird revisiting it this week when he's also on the staircase currently as we're recording this, playing David Rudolph, uh, the defense attorney for Michael Peterson. Very different role. Uh, Joe Barg's always just going to show up somewhere. He's always there. (laughs) It's true. Uh, Yeah, in terms of how weird Richard is, apparently, according to my research, him showing no sign of any positive human emotion except when he's loving his gigantic dog was a real detail corroborated by people who interacted with him. Based on what we see, his wife, who has since divorced him in real life, might Mm -hmm. have been jealous of the affection that he shows this animal. Which is understandable. Dogs are the best. (laughs) I I was like, in those scenes, I'm like, I relate to you now. Yeah, especially that dog. That was a big boy. He was like a bear-sized dog. That head was bigger than Richard's head. Uh, I appreciate that the first we see of them, too, is is when they're getting served dinner in their own museum wing, because the show circles back around to the question of plutocrats using philanthropy to launder their reputations, which is a conversation which should be having more. Like, if these jags would pay their taxes, we would not need these endowments that they are granting. It is uh, amazing just to especially watch the Richard Sackler scenes, because to watch someone who seems to have the way he is shown seems to have no real skills delegating and being in charge of so many lives and eventual misfortunes and just wanting to continue to go full steam ahead. It's like, oh, none of this matters to you. This all just rolls off your back. And unfortunately, we know how this ends. So it all continues to just roll off his back. Yeah. It's the juxtaposition between the exorbitant amount of wealth that these people have and 
everyone else just down in the dirt throughout. It's, again, it's impressive, but it's also just, it's so disturbing because it's still happening. There was no real saving the day in, in general with this show. Yeah. It, it, it does kind of grind my gears to say. I think that's a fair opinion to hold. The other thing is that the donations are pretty much the only time we see the Sacklers like bawling out with the billions that they've made killing all these people. Like we hear one of the younger cousins wants to invest in a ski resort company, but Richard will not even take a ski vacation because he needs to work and make even more money. They just seem so boring to be so rich and so boring. It's like if you have money, (laughs) be fun, please. I beg of you. Not too much fun because I could go bad too. (laughs) (laughs) Let's move on, because some of the work that Richard does is make psych-up phone calls to the relatively low-level reps who are flogging OxyContin to doctors. And our POV character in this storyline is Billy, played by Will Poulter. I'm generally opposed to British people playing Americans, but other than his extremely English-looking face, I was convinced. What did you think of his performance? I I thought he was great, and uh, I thought his accent was really good, too. And Mm -hmm. I was hoping he would say psychopath, because that's usually the tell for British actors. (laughs) Like Pattinson in The Batman, he said psychopath. I'm like, you're you're not American. Uh, The other tell is anything, and he says anything pretty early, and he does it well. So very Mm -hmm. good job. Well observed. Two thumbs up on the accent, Poulter. <laughs> so way more than the Sacklers, we see Billy and Amelia, who's played by Philippa Sue, outwardly displaying signs of their financial status, her suits and shoes and car, his nice apartment. But as he starts to lose faith in the mission, she tells a bit of her backstory, which is that she grew up poor and is determined not to go back. Should we have gotten more of her in the storyline or how did you feel about her character? I, I, I really kind of wish we could have gotten more. But I do think the show was at, like at the eight episodes and the length it is, it's it's pretty stuffed well too i do Mm -hmm. think partially that it is intentional that she's such a detached character and she keeps uh billy at arm's length and the show is also keeping her at arm's length with us i would love to know more i think in general that her story with billy is one of those stories that it could be its own thing honestly uh a show about billy and amelia or any kind of show in general like said in the world of pharma sales reps that's a fascinating and it's obviously seedy world which I'm surprised that there hasn't been a show about that you have shows where characters are farmer reps and you get into that but like a full tilt show on that would be very interesting and I think it proved it with as they're just cogs in the machine of the story but their story is just as fascinating because of the lies they are pushing the lies they're telling themselves to continue to push these lies Going into the show, especially, I didn't think that I would feel for uh, for Billy, for, for Poulter's character. I'm like, why would I, why would I care about this smarmy guy who is pushing these pills? But it, it is a testament to the writing and the acting that you, you feel for the, the kid. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna call him a kid because uh, I'm, I'm at that age where I call everyone. <laughs> a kid He's younger at this point. than us. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. So. You don't want to feel for him, even though early on he, he's asking questions. It's like, you know, maybe this isn't the right line of work for you because you're asking questions. Right. And they're good questions, questions to ask, but he still, you know, pushes through and pushes it along. It takes a bit for him to, you know, not do that. Yeah. 
And she has to be the one to say, stop asking those questions because you're going to get yourself fired if you get exactly. too curious about any of this. I will add before we move on, if uh, if people are curious about seeing a show about a pill mill, which is a reference or a, a term that gets thrown around a lot in this plot line, early Claws, they cover that. Very yes. different vibe on Claws, but that's a, a storyline there as well. It's great. So central to Billy's arc is his relationship with um, Samuel Phoenix, the Michael Keaton character. And he runs a medical practice in Finch Creek, Virginia, a fictional town. We're told that the reps are going to be given psych profiles on all of their doctors, but it doesn't seem like Sam is that hard to sell. He's a gentleman treating gentle people, not naive, but not assuming the people he meets are hiding nefarious ulterior motives either, which is what makes his arc so heartbreaking. He was like the soul of the show, and I was very glad he's already gotten awards buzz yeah. for it. There, there's and just awards. a moment... Yeah, there's a moment early on and where you know where this is going, but you just kind of say, oh, no, where he's telling one of his patients to, like, lay off of, like, the Advil PM or something like that. And mm-hmm. I'm like, you, you sweet man. No. Yeah. And I somehow <laughs> did not turn the show off right there. I'm like, nope, it ends there and nothing bad happens to anyone. Um, yeah, Michael Keaton, amazing and brilliant here. I, I was talking about this with a friend and saying, you know, people forget, of course, that Michael Keaton got his start in comedy. And I, I, yeah. I, as much as I wish he would, you know, go back and do some comedies too, the work he is putting out, especially in the past few years, it's been interesting. And it's just, even when he gets his awards, it, it seems like people forget about Michael Keaton and then he, he does something amazing again. And you're like, oh yeah, Michael Keaton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's incredible. And I think, too, the show does a good job making it credible that Sam would be enticed by the weekend seminar with the the Russell Portnoy connection. This is a pain expert that he's Sam has read his book and, and really respects him. And looking into that guy, uh, that's how I learned the real Russell Portnoy still practices more recently started helping plaintiffs to sue Purdue Pharma so that they would not sue him for his part in what a helping great guy. To, <laughs> yeah to spread op- opioids around the country. Um, so I, I feel like the the key scene for the two of them is um, after Sam has himself become addicted to OxyContin, ends up in rehab, Billy goes to see him, racked with guilt, and they have a nice brief conversation before Sam asks him if he can get him some pills. And this is, feels like a turning point for Billy where he's like, oh, geez, <laughs> this, is, this is quite bad. Because he likes Sam, it's clear. Mm-hmm. He, he sees Sam as a father figure, as you know, he's he's talked yeah. about his family, who, where he's kind of the black sheep, basically. And mm-hmm. he, 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 he fostered a connection with him only to send him down this path. Well, moving on, Sam is also key in the plot lines of the Finch Creek residents who end up addicted to OxyContin, like Betsy Malum, who's played by Caitlin Deaver. And we already talked about this. Shame is a fundamental element of any addiction narrative. And Betsy is already in that mindset even before she suffers the back injury for which Sam prescribes her the OxyContin because she's a closeted lesbian who knows her Christian parents would not accept her coming out. And when she tries to come out, is proven right, tragically. Yeah, uh, the type of parents who will pray for any uh, gay person who they come across in their town. Yeah. Yeah. Which, especially early on, it's one of those things where it's that that Southern hospitality that's, but it's also also just completely fake. The the bless your heart from Mayor Winningham was like one of the first things she says, bless her heart. And it really is one of the things where we're like, we're good people. We we love everyone because we're Christians. But as soon as um, it's 
on their doorstep, that love quickly disappears, unfortunately. Because if this story wasn't tragic enough, it has that aspect as well. Betsy gets a great scene with her pastor in one of her later attempts to get sober. And she admits she's never believed in God and only attended church for her parents. But she may have also been doing it for herself without knowing it, he says, which, you know, I I agree with you. A lot of times Christianity is portrayed and is not in actuality sincere. But this felt like a more thoughtful take on the complexity of faith than you usually see in a project like this. So I appreciated Mm -hmm. that. There There was an attempt not to necessarily show both sides, but to meet the character where they where she is. It's interesting the way they portrayed Betsy's parents because obviously, you know, they were very anti-gay, but it's one of those things where when Betsy's like about to to leave and her mom's like, "You know what? I don't care. I'm sorry. I don't yeah. care." basically, whereas, you know, her father is like, "Oh well, goodbye." It's one of those mm-hmm. things where it is possible, you know, when it comes down to it, is your, is your family going to just cast you off or are they going to prove how much they love you? And in that moment, her mother does try, but we're already going down a path that there's no turning back, unfortunately. And yeah. you you knew with a show like this, it, there had to be a tragic ending in, in that kind of way for at least one of the characters. Mm-hmm. And Caitlin Deaver is, is so winning. She's always been winning. And so, of course, they use that against all of us and they break our hearts. Yeah, apparently Danny Strong has said that that's one of the big notes he got, which was don't don't kill Betsy, let Betsy live. And I, I feel like the show, as much as we love Betsy, it's a it's a weaker show if if we don't have this key character mm-hmm. pay the ultimate price for this addiction that has been thrust upon her, basically. Because that that that's the thing; it is a, a tragedy what's happening. To her, to, to to people in real life, it's not based on if you're a good person or a bad person. Yes, it's just un- unfortunately the, the the lack of luck in this situation. Mm-hmm. If you're able to get out, uh, and at the last minute she just she couldn't get out of it. But Sam survives. He starts taking Suboxone to deal with his addiction, and seeing him drive his little bus of patients to the clinic that's out of town. As he shows what it means to find redemption through service. I mean, that was one of the moments in the show that made me cry. I thought it was really important to give him this yeah. this moment. And now I'm uh, tearing up with you just uh, <laughs> reciting it. Uh, because, yeah. this, that's, again, that's part of why I say this show isn't just misery porn. It yes. ultimately is hopeful, especially knowing that there is no quote-unquote happy ending. Like, the good guys didn't actually beat the bad guys. It's an issue that's continuing on, even with knowledge and things being slightly better. But there has to be some hope. The show was never out to say, and here's the tragic thing, and it's always tragic and it's always bad. That is not what the show's intent was at any point. Right. It showed the reality, but it's not saying that, that all hope is lost. Right. And it, and it proves or it, it makes a strong case for how to help one another out of this is to create strong community with people yes. around you, whatever that may mean. And changes from person to person. But we certainly see it with Sam. Yeah. So we also get the law enforcement people, Rick, Peter Sarsgaard, Randy, John Huganacker, and both of them are from the U.S. Attorney's Office. There's also John Brownlee, Jake McDormand, who's their boss, and Bridget Meyer, who we already mentioned, Rosario Dawson from the DEA. So can we talk about the promotional video that Randy and Rick focus on at the start of the investigation? Because in a whole series about dystopic modern life, 
the multiple testimonials touting OxyContin for making sure patients never missed work is so dark. And I feel like that could have been focused on even more. Yeah, that's the world in which we live. Woo-hoo. Mm-hmm. It's uh, yeah. even more prescient now, of course, uh, in pandemic life. What? Yeah. Anything to not miss work? Okay. Yay. Yeah. I kind of love that after one million years of the nagging wife of a cop trope, here we get Rollis Barza as Paul Bridget's husband, taking his turn playing it opposite Bridget. Um, and I appreciate how the show portrayed how she kind of undermined herself with her total lack of diplomacy as well. It's once showing what bullshit it is that she turned people off by not being softer, but that this is a real critique. Women here at work all the time, and it does derail efforts like hers. Yeah. Especially when you're you're dealing in this case, you know, with very high profile, big wig people, you have to quote unquote act a certain way. Mm-hmm. But that wouldn't have gotten anything done. People acting a certain way is what got them into this mess, really. Yeah, exactly. She gets a crazy scene. There's a, a moment where Rudy Giuliani is opening an exhibit at the DEA museum, and afterwards seeks her out to find her. She's really excited to meet him because at this point in history, it was okay to respect Rudy Giuliani, and she does, or rather she does until he keeps talking and says he has this great new client and it's Purdue Pharmaceuticals and her face just goes dead. (laughs) This is just another way that she's being undermined. Yep. Everyone's corrupt, girl. Yeah. Tough way to find it out. (laughs) But she 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 finally learned. This feels like a good time to um, throw to my interview with Danny Strong, and let's hear that now. You've talked about how this project came to be in past interviews. You were pitched an opioid story, but then it turned out that another division of Fox had also optioned Beth Macy's book, Dope Sick. So the two projects merged. She came on as a producer. How did it change your process to collaborate with someone whose background is in journalism? Well, it it didn't really change the process at all. It just added to it. So Beth really wanted to be in the writer's room. Uh, She hadn't done that before. And I thought, well, having an expert on the subject matter in the writer's room sounds pretty great to me. So she was just part of the team in a very, very significant way. Uh, We continued the interview process and the investigative fact-finding Uh, not just through the writer's room process, but through prep and even production. So for me, I never had a journalist out finding information and then someone, and then I was finding information. We would have uh, documents leaked to us and people reaching out. And then we would conduct interviews sometimes together, sometimes apart. So it was really uh, terrific having this not just an expert on the subject matter, but a terrific reporter. And she's the greatest person ever. I just loved her. So it was just wonderful on on a number of levels having her uh, a major part of the process. Let's talk about those leaked documents. Were you able to use them? And are they now in the public record or are they only in the record because of the show? Uh, absolutely, we were able to use them. It was It was pretty fascinating. So there was one in particular that was from the Justice Department. And it was a memo from the fraud unit in the Justice Department that basically said, yes, the the case, the Brownlee case should move forward. And then there were details in that memo 
that had never been reported before. Um, meetings that, that Curtis Wright, the former FDA official that joined Purdue Pharma and had granted them the label, uh, that he had had meetings secretly with Purdue before he had left the FDA and before the label had even been granted. So I took those documents and I created this really, I, it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's a great scene, but it's a very <laughs> interesting scene in which we see Curtis Wright of the FDA meeting secretly with Purdue Pharma executives and coming up with the wording of the, the famous wording on the label together. And the lawyers for Hulu, they weren't comfortable with the scene because it was only sourced from this document that was leaked to us and there wasn't a secondary source. And I was very frustrated because I thought, yeah, but it's a Justice Department document. Why can't we use it? And so what I did was I kept the scene on the schedule. I, I just thought, I'm just gonna shoot the scene because it's better to have it in post and maybe I can fight that fight another day and still get the scene into the show, but I won't be able to get the scene in the show if I don't shoot it while we're in production. So then two days before I go to shoot the scene, Patrick Radin, Keith's book, Empire of Pain, Beth Macy gets an early galley copy and he goes into heavy detail about that exact scene and the memo. And that was all the confirmation that Hulu needed for us to be able to not only shoot the scene, but, but use it. So it was this sort of great moment of we had this leaked document. Uh, it, it wasn't strong enough for, for Hulu to let us to, to roll with it. And then a second source came up just in the nick of time. Um, however, I, like I said, I would have shot it anyways, and I, I could have used the second source after the fact. But things like that were quite exciting because because of the, the how it was described in the book, I was able then to even go further in my portrayal than in my original rewrite. I mean, my original writing of the scene. So I rewrote the scene that night, made it even more explosive, and then we went and shot it. Wow, <laughs> that's, a, that's a crazy story. Very that's unusual for me over my <laughs> career as a screenwriter to have things like that. Uh, but there were people that would come out of the woodwork and, and give us information. And then I had another source that was privy to a lot of the the documents in the bankruptcy. And so what I would do was when I would get this new information, I would then go to him or her and confirm it. And and, and then we were good to go because we would have we would have multiple uh, it would be multiple sourced and, and Disney uh, slash Hulu lawyers would feel confident that, that we could move forward with it. Wow. So you had leakers from the Justice Department, but also from Purdue and just sort of around. Yeah, we had an amazing source from Purdue from that era that gave us uh, a lot of great uh, material and a lot of good just kind of personal color to help um, construct these characters in a, in a realistic, uh, well-rounded way. It's Richard Sackler is a very challenging person to dramatize. Uh, he's, he's so villainized publicly, but then when you talk to people that know him personally, they hate him even more, right? He's, <laughs> he's clearly a difficult person to be around. There's clearly a very unusual personality disorder. Um, there's yeah, a famous email in which his son, David Sackler, emailed their mother, Beth Sackler, and the things he says about his dad are pretty brutal, right? So uh, yeah. people, people around him um, have, a hard time, have a hard time dealing with him. And so I needed to just find, 
Yeah, it was like a scavenger hunt of, okay, so let me find some other sides to this because clearly there's got to be other sides to this person than just the sort of first blush response to them. Yeah, well, to that point, I have to ask, how many performers did you see for the role of Richard's dog, Unch? Unch, oh, I love Unch. <laughs> uh, that Unch, so so funny story about Unch. And, and by the way, Unch, I don't know, but the the performer that played Unch, Tank, that's who I love. Yep. Tank is the sweetest dog ever. Uh, so Unch, so here's, here's a, I'm going to come clean about something that is historically inaccurate in our show. Unch was a French Mastiff. But because where we were in Virginia, we couldn't get a French Mastiff. So we had to hire an English Mastiff. Ah, it's all lies. The show is all lies. <laughs> so literally Tank was our one and only option if I wanted a Mastiff, something in the Mastiff family. Uh, so yes, it was, uh, and, then, and then when Unch, when Tank showed up, he didn't have a, he wasn't a very mobile dog. And uh, so we couldn't, we couldn't do much with him, but literally just have him lie there. Uh, but I, I, I thought uh, it, it added a great layer and dimension to humanize Richard Sackler. And that came from my source in Purdue Pharma that said he was most human around his dog. And, and that was kind of the, the quote was it was the only time you ever saw he had a heart um, was when he was with Unch. And, um, and uh, Michael Stuhlbarg, who brilliantly played Richard Sackler, he loved having Unch in scenes. So I just kept writing Unch into scene after scene. Uh, and got got him into more episodes. So more dog bones for uh, Tank. <laughs> Good boy. Good boy. Good um, Tank. What struck me about the Sackler scenes generally is not just that their their money doesn't make them happy, but nothing makes them happy. And the show doesn't have a ton of levity, but did part of you enjoy making those Sackler scenes as vicious as they are? Well, it, it, it was, once again, that stuff is based on reporting. So uh, there was a scene that we shot and we shot it as reported, and it was too unbelievable. So what happened was, was that, um, so Mortimer Sackler uh, was so outraged at Richard Sackler taking over the company that he went and he tried to punch his brother, Raymond Sackler, <laughs> but he missed him and punched his lawyer in the face, okay? So that <sighs> happened, we shot it. And it was, it just was, it, it, it felt too ridiculous. Uh, and it was one of the one of the only times Hulu came back and said, hey, you went too far. And I said, no, right. no, no, that's actually what happens. And they said, oh, wow, it's just, it just feels like we're in a different TV show. It's just, it's just too, too over the top. And so I actually cut the punch out because it was too absurd, but the, the fighting and the screaming. So nonetheless, that's the point is, is that, that's how those uh, those meetings are reported to have been, quote, kind of crazy, frolic, wild affairs of the two factions of the family, uh, yelling, screaming at each other. Uh, and there was a lot of animosity between the Mortimer and, um, and Raymond wings. Uh, and I think uh, the Raymond wing, which was Jonathan and Richard, they were really doing the work. They were really at the company. And it was just the two of them, those two brothers, so the money that was coming in was more than plenty. And, and R Richard Sackler was, I think, quite frugal with his money, where mm -hmm. the other wing, the, the Mortimer wing, not only did they not really do the work, uh, but there was a ton of them because he had so many children. So that created this sort of 
you know, spoiled, entitled dysfunction of, of all these mouths to feed that aren't lifting a finger but are demanding their cash. And it's, so that created just a ton of, of tension between, between the two factions. Yeah. To go back one more generation, you've said in other interviews that you wanted to give Arthur Sackler his own plot line. And we, we do see a little of him testifying to Congress. And just based on that, it seems like there could be enough there for a spinoff movie. What don't people know about Arthur that they should? Well, I have to say that the, the book Empire of Pain goes into Arthur Sackler in the most fascinating, brilliant way. It's, it's, it's an unbelievable story. Patrick Braden Keefe tells it beautifully. And it's, it's, uh, I, I refer to it as Charles Dickens in Hell. It is just the <laughs> most Dickensian story of his journey and what he achieved and and uh, he he redefined modern medical advertising. He basically, I think, in some ways, you could say Arthur Sackler created the essential corruption that is Big Pharma now in the dishonesty and manipulation. And by the way, I don't think all of Big Pharma is is dishonest and corrupt, uh, but there are elements of it in which people absolutely put. Profits above safety, create false studies, create false articles, create false diagnoses uh, in order to sell a drug that, that people may not need and then underestimating or underselling the effects of what that drug does. And that's certainly what he did with Valium, which was highly addictive, uh, created basically you know, the malady, psychic tension for uh, for what was needed uh, so, that, so that they could then market this drug for that. So you could um, say that, wow, this person's an absolute genius. You could say that they're an absolute evil genius, or you could just say they're evil. It's, it's, it's really up to you. Um, but it's certainly, I think in many ways, uh, would go on to define not just medical advertising, but, but the, the very nature of yeah, American pharmaceutical industry in general. And that's why you see other countries don't have some of the issues we have because they don't, uh, they don't allow this. They don't allow uh, these things to happen because the government controls prescription medication, et cetera. So let's move on to the sales rep from Pharma, Billy, and to Sam, the doctor that we see Billy selling to. The audience needs to believe both that Billy is, as he puts it, addicted to the money that he's making from selling OxyContin, but also that he genuinely cares about Sam, who ends up becoming addicted to OxyContin himself. What moments did you feel were most instrumental in defining both Billy and his drive and, and the character's relationship to each other? Well, I, I, again, a lot of it comes from true stories and comes from interviews and people that I actually interviewed. And I remember interviewing a former Purdue sales rep from this era uh, and him talking about how much they believed everything Purdue was was selling them, and 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 I've interviewed a few farmer reps from this year, and they all said the same thing, which is they were conned as well. However, at a certain point, they start to realize what's happening. And I, I remember one particular person I asked. I said, "What was the point for you? When did you realize? Oh, this drug." that you're selling is not addictive actually is addictive. And he said he pulled up to a pain clinic and it looked like a tailgate party. Yeah. And there were people out front barbecuing meat, listening to music, drinking beers. And it was just like a giant party. And that was the moment he realized, 
oh, this is not true, what we're selling. And, and I said, oh, well, then did you quit? And he said, no. And he didn't quit for several years. And it was because he was addicted to the money. He was addicted to the lifestyle. He was addicted of how, how easy the job was at a certain point. Now, he, he did quit. But it was it, it took several years, and it was it was fear for for his own you know legal safety at the end of the day, and then and then after that I went on a very serious soul searching and does quite a bit of altruistic stuff in the addiction community now. But it was it was it was just so real and fascinating, and that's where that portrayal came from. So in terms of Sam, it, it only takes a few scenes in the first episode to establish he's a good doctor. The patients that he treats really love and respect him. But because of the way the show's chronology kind of loops back on itself, we in the audience have already seen him high testifying to the grand jury. Showing Sam during his addiction before anything else feels like it's part of your overall mission to destigmatize substance use disorder. Talk about that, if I'm right. <laughs> yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. So, so one of the reasons why I wanted to have a character who was a doctor that got addicted and who was a good man and a good person, right? I, I, I mean, there were many pill mills. We show the pill mills. There were absolutely corrupt doctors that were taking advantage of this and were essentially drug dealers. And, and, and we do cover that. But the point of having the Phoenix character, which is inspired by three different doctors, but I, I would not be surprised if there's not thousands of, of Phoenixes, that, of doctors that got addicted to OxyContin and, and other opioids, is to show how truly addictive this drug was. That uh, a doctor who had a very high level, uh, very elite medical education he himself got hooked, and he did not want to get hooked. This was not a, 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 a pleasure seeker. This was someone who started taking it for an injury, uh, like so many people. Uh, and so to have that character, and then to have another character, which was the Betsy character, which was a person who got injured on a job and, and then became addicted, it was to show two different addiction journeys, two different paths that people would go on, and they were two of those, they, they were basic archetypes of anecdotes I had read over and over and over again. And there are obviously several more archetypes than just the two of them, but but that seemed to cover quite a bit. And, and by showing a loving, talented, really smart doctor get addicted, the point was to show uh, how truly overwhelming and all-encompassing an opioid addiction can be. Yeah. Also that with the video, the, the promotional video and how much the patients that are in it keep stressing, I did not have to miss work because of OxyContin. That's part of it, too, for for Betsy, for sure, that we're just locked. We're locked in this hell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was um, and, and that was a huge. Yeah, I mean, that video was really significant. It was just sent to thousands and thousands of doctors and and uh, when I was investigating the U.S. attorney investigation uh, into how they put their case together, just as the show portrays it, that video was sort of a big kind of opening moment when no one in the video is mentioning OxyContin by name in yeah. a video designed to sell OxyContin. It, it just tipped them off that, huh, I think there's something going on here. Uh, and then the case it went on from there. 
So the last plot thread, as you've already touched on, involves the law enforcement officials and Bridget, the Rosario Dawson character, has a lot of surreal moments as a DEA agent, but meeting Rudy Giuliani and very quickly losing all the respect that she had had for him is, I would say, one of the wildest, particularly to 2022 eyes. Yeah, yeah. So that character is a composite character. However, the actions that character takes when she is transferred to the diversion division are based upon things that an actual diversion agent did. And in several of those scenes are actual scenes that happened, some of them verbatim as reported in different books. And that Rudy Giuliani scene that actually happened um, mm. and, uh, and, and not dissimilar from, from how we portrayed it. And, and, and Giuliani was, I think, as the show portrays, the, one of the defining figures in the opioid crisis and that his ability to lobby the highest levels of the Justice Department, uh, his position as the front runner to get the Republican nomination uh, so that uh, the officials in the Justice Department that uh, were seeking to curry favor for him were very aware that there could be a fantastic job if he were to become the next president of the United States. And therefore, they put pressure on Brownlee to not pursue felony charges against the individuals. And I think that that is one of those historical turning points. Had those individuals been charged, had they had flipped, one of them flipped on the Sacklers, Rick Mountcastle firmly believes one of them would have. He actually has told me the name of the person he thinks would have flipped. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and had that had happened, the opioid crisis very well could have ended in 2007. Um, uh, Purdue Pharma, everything would have been different for them. Instead, they pled guilty to these misdemeanors. The company pled guilty to a felony. And instead of their, their, you know, their selling and their marketing techniques being curtailed or shifted, which would have happened had Richard Zackler or someone been indicted, uh, the opposite happened. And they hit the gas They tripled their sales within two years. They brought McKinsey on board, who helped them, quote, turbocharge their sales. And the uh, sales of OxyContin skyrocketed uh, post this settlement um, over the next several years. And and I think that that is one of not just the great tragedies of the um, opioid crisis, but one of the great tragedies uh, in the history of the country. I think that the the number of, of deaths hadn't hit this sort of cataclysmic level by 2007. Many people had died. It was still extremely tragic. But those numbers skyrocketed over the next 13, 14 years, and and, the, and they still are. Uh, and, and so that's, to me, that was sort of a, a potential turning point in history. And the other one was when the FDA sides with Purdue Pharma over the DEA's investigation. That was a scene we did with the Bridget character uh, in which they literally side with Purdue in the room. uh, And that scene, all of that actually happened. A lot of that dialogue is verbatim. There's a slideshow that Bridget is giving 
in that slideshow was the actual slideshow they gave on the day that was leaked to me. So I put it in the show. Um, mm-hmm. And that was a, uh, I think that, that, that too was a turning point because that was the moment that the FDA could have completely changed Purdue Pharma's ability to prescribe for uh, moderate pain and restricted it to severe pain or just put greater restrictions on them. And instead, they side with Purdue over the DEA. I think that's another another truly great tragic moment. Yeah, well, so much of the shady stuff that Purdue does is totally legal. How difficult was it for you to dramatize the difference between actions that are, quote, merely corrupt and those that rise to the level of criminal? Well, because, um, in fact, some of it, some of what they did is merely corrupt. And then some of what they did is flat out criminal. (laughs) They created fake blood charts. I mean, literally fake blood charts. They created fake studies. They said things that were the opposite of true. So what they pled guilty to is a company in 2007, and they had to sign a statement of facts of what they pled guilty to, is unbelievably damning. It is so criminal. Uh, so that is that is one of the things that is so maddening and absurd about how it didn't change anything and that they were able to, in fact, grow exponentially even stronger post post these 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 um, felony convictions for the company. And it was truly because I believe and, and many people believe uh, because individuals uh, weren't charged with felonies uh, and they were able to to essentially get off scot free with a fine of is about six hundred and thirty million, which uh, for them was just the cost of doing business. Yeah. Was dismantling the Sacklers legacy, which continues something that you particularly hoped to do with the show? A huge motivation was when I started this, it was 2018. The Patrick Raiden Keefe New Yorker article had just come out. Uh, and, and that's when I first was introduced to all this, like many people, including Nan Golden, who after she read that article is when she started doing her protests. But I, it, it, it had seemed when I was working on this in, in not even just those early days for the first two years of me working on the project that they just that they had gotten away with it, that they had gotten away with it. They were completely getting away with it. There was no comeuppance for them whatsoever. And so my motivation was to give them the trial that they never got, was to lay out the facts of their rampant criminal enterprise of the lies and deception that created the opioid crisis, because I'm still flabbergasted by the fact that one family made billions and billions of dollars off the suffering of millions and millions of people and the the death and destruction of people and communities for such a small group of people to profit from. It's still... It's still so shocking. Alex Gibney made a terrific documentary on it called Crime of the Century. And that's what it is. It's the crime of the century. And, and it was very important to me to get these facts out and to get this story out in as wide a way as possible. Uh, and and it, was very, it was very much a motivation. Then my other motivation was to – I had two other motivations that are, that are sort of tied together was to – redefine the nature of addiction, that people view um, people with addiction issues 
uh, particularly opioid addiction, as as losers and failures, and and that they're weak or they're burnouts or they just want to get high, right? When in fact, what has occurred is their brain has been hijacked, and they cannot live without this drug, or they are in so much pain, they think they're going to die. And that's what being dope sick is called. And to me, I didn't know that going in, going into this project. And it blew my mind. It blew my mind how everything I understood about addiction was completely wrong. And then the last thing was that, the, that there's actually a path forward that's pretty effective, or for many people, extremely effective, which is um, buprenorphine, uh, specifically Suboxone. Um, and, and it's so stigmatized. And uh, last I had read, 17% of the people that need Suboxone get it. It's like saying 17% of the people that need chemotherapy get it. It's, 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 it's a statistic that's not just upsetting, but we can do something about that. So I thought this show could really be a, a, a terrific advertisement promotion for for medical assisted treatment for opioid use disorder. And that's why it's a huge part of the last episode that's very specifically designed to be a goal of, look, here is a path forward and it's stigmatized, but it shouldn't be. And, and so those were, the, that, those were the, the motivations behind the piece. Let's share some final thoughts. Uh, I feel like all the discoveries are law enforcement characters that make that turn out not to be actionable because witnesses are scared to talk or have been bought or something that seems like it should be illegal is totally fine. Like if this were going to be a movie, it could have been about just the rank, totally legal corruption that made all of the Sacklers destruction possible. Latoya, yeah. how did you feel about this part of the story? I, I, I think if it were a movie, it'd probably focus on, you know, the investigation part. I think it would lose a bit of the humanity aspect of it. And mm-hmm. yeah, unfortunately, as uh, hopeful as the show is, basically, it's it's ends on like a fighting chance if you, you know, band together. It really is just a reminder of the way the upper class... Uh, can just screw everyone else over, you know? Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of Dark Waters in that way, too, where it's sort of like every industry is like pharma in that they're going to push as far as they can and just wait until there's a reprisal. But otherwise, there's no reason for them to change what they're doing. Mm. Which is grim. But the (laughs) key is to keep on going and not to just let them continue on. You yeah, have to keep continuing on. Wow, <laughs> we weren't depressed to start this off. <laughs> <laughs> but also, yeah. <laughs> my real final thought, though, is that both TV and movies taught me that if you have to snort something for it to work, that's bad. And uh, this show confirmed that as well. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> I'll try to be slightly more optimistic. I, I do appreciate that after... You know, the really dark stuff as the investigation wraps up in the final episode where we actually close is back with Sam running his clinic. He's he's gotten his license back. He's working with other people in recovery and he's finding meaning by making connections with other people that are in recovery and and sharing what he's learned and, and helping people to stay on their path, which is, as we said earlier, that's that's the most hopeful message we can get out of this. Yeah, do as much as you can, basically, to fight the system, especially when the whole system is seemingly working to uh, push you down. And again, they were targeting 
these small working class towns where all really you have is your community. And Mm -hmm. in doing so, it fractured said community. So even though it's a small place, starting at that small level is so helpful. Yeah. Yeah, circumstances contrive to keep us apart and connection is what we should all be striving for. And I think that's a lovely way for the show to have ended and for us to end today. Thanks so much for listening to this special edition of Little Gold Men. You can find me on Twitter at LaFergs. And you can find me every Wednesday co-hosting the TV podcast Extra Hot Great. I'm on Twitter at Tara Ariano, T-A-R-A-A-R-I-A-N-O. Our editor and producer was Brett Fuchs. It's crucial they understand we've created the greatest painkiller in the history of human civilization. I think I can make this the biggest drug in the world. 